My friends, I am so blessed and so honored to do the work that I do every day, whether as a speaker or as an author or as a podcast host. I get to empower you to live, to work, and to lead inspired. That's my job, and I feel incredibly blessed to do it. Over the past 12 years, I've grown from a single speech in front of three incredibly bored third grade Girl Scouts to now influencing several million individuals around the world. Through that growth, I've been able to invite others to do this amazing, incredible mission-centered work with me. I have a team of rock stars. Seriously, they are self-starting, they're deeply driven, they're heart-led, passionate, entrepreneurial rock stars. And as a team, we've gotten really clear that yes, we inspire more than 250,000 people online each week. And yes, we inspire more than 50,000 people at live speaking events each year. And yes, we've inspired a couple hundred thousand people through my number one national best-selling book, On Fire, with another book, one that I'm even more excited about, in the works for 2020. But we want to grow the Live Inspired movement exponentially. And we want to help wake people up from accidental living so that they can truly live their lives on fire. To do this, we recognize the need to better leverage social media, to better utilize our email and new technology. And so, my friends, drum roll, please. Come on. Here we go. We are hiring. We are hiring. We are looking for a new colleague to join us in the Live Inspired movement. Our new colleague will be our digital marketing strategist, specifically using social media, email, and new technology to bring everyone else in the marketplace a better, more inspired experience with me, with our community, so that we can invite more friends to truly live inspired. So what do you think? Does this sound like it might be a great fit for you? Do you want to help us change the world one life at a time by using the best of your talents, your creativity, and your experiences to help inspire others? If you want to learn more or you know someone who might, get more information on my website at johnolearyinspires.com forward slash careers. I'm going to read that one off one more time because I really want you and those that you know who have a mission, heart, and the ability and the desire to change the world to check this one out. John O'Leary inspires.com forward slash careers. Can't wait to hear from you. So my friends, let's go ahead and jump into today's Live Inspired podcast. Welcome to the Live Inspired podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. Never forget that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it is the only thing that ever has Those are some of my favorite words from Margaret Mead. It is true for a small group of individuals, but I'm telling you this, and you're going to hear it loud and clear on today's podcast. It is also true for every individual life. That one person, thoughtful and committed, can in fact change the world. Our guest today is a living, and we will come back to that word in a moment, a living example of how true that is. On September 24th, 2000, Kevin Hines felt as though his life no longer had meaning. He took a bus from his home. He got off on the final stop, which was the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco, California. He walked to the highest point of the bridge, and after being ignored for more than an hour, he decided to end his life. Kevin went to the top rail. He let go with his hands, and he fell to his death. And then something remarkable happened. He found true life. My friends, this is the remarkable, tragic, redemptive, and ultimately life-giving story of Kevin Hines. Rare, rare is his story. And yet, sadly, rare are the stories that we all write together. Our lives are not accidents. We are not here by chance. We are here with a divine appointment to serve, to lead, to impact, and ultimately to fully live 
and abundantly lead, not only for ourselves, but also for those around us. Exhibit A of this is my friend, Kevin Hines, who travels the world reminding individuals of the value of their life. And today he is on the Live Inspired podcast to talk about the value of your life. My friends, I'm gonna encourage you right now to buckle up, open wide your hearts, your minds, your journal, tell a friend. You're gonna wanna share this episode with those in your community because they are going to want to learn about this epic journey too. As I bring on our newest friend and a guy that I look up to, his name, Kevin Hines. Kevin, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Thank you for having me, John. I really appreciate it. Well, man, as you just heard in the introduction, you are exhibit A of second chances. Ever since I heard your story, I've been looking forward to the opportunity and the honor of bringing you on to our show. So, man, thank you for making time for our listeners, for our friends today to talk about an incredibly, incredibly important life-giving topic. And before we really unpack what that topic is, tell our listeners a little bit about your life today. My life is it's beautiful. You know, it's beautiful and it's painful. Uh, I'm going through a lot uh, of physical challenges right now and my mental health, the diagnosis is bipolar disorder. It goes up and down and I live with all of the symptoms I've ever had, including extreme paranoid delusion, hallucinations, auditory and visual, um, depression, mania. Of course, the mania goes into depression. You come up and you come down and several other things, but I know how to cope with it. I know how to work around it. And I know how to defeat it one day at a time. And I can't do it alone. I have, a, I have a team of people in my life that I call my personal protectors. And they keep me thriving every day just by their love, their compassion. You know, the number one on that list is my wife, Margaret. Number two is my father. Number three is my mother. And four, five, and six round out, you know, my best friends and closest colleagues and family members. And I've built this network over time of individuals that will not see me fail and fall alone and they will catch me if I do. And that that's really what defeating what they call mental illness really is. I call it brain pain, John. I call it like I I have to defeat my brain pain every day, but I'm glad to because I get to be here and I almost wasn't. Hmm. And and getting to be here in my opinion is one of the greatest privileges and gifts we have ever been given, in my opinion, next to my faith in God. And I'm not trying to push that on your audience, but that I have that faith. I've had it my entire life. Uh, I lost my faith when I stood atop the Golden Gate Bridge walkway, ready to jump off to end my life. And I, I always tell people, you know, almost jokingly, I found it on the way down. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but seriously, I've been given this amazing gift uh, of something you talk about a lot, which is second chance. I've been given a second chance, and I cannot squander that. I have travel the world as often as I can, trying to share a story that inspires a spark in someone to do something with their life to make it change. And uh, I believe you and I are people, we are conduits to people's change. Change is the wrong word. Transformation. Mm. You know, if, if we can tell a story that has these sticky memories in it, scientifically speaking, storytelling absolutely changes lives, transforms lives. If you're telling a story that ends in hope, light, and recovery from pain. If you can tell that kind of story and not just leave the person in pain, you are doing something that is really beautiful and that stays in the brain for the rest of their lives, depending upon how you told that story. And that's my goal. My goal is to go out around the world and help other people thrive just as I'm doing right now, even inside the pain. Well, brother, we are going to be unpacking that story that you share and, and what led you to being able to articulate it as articulately, as passionately, as honestly as you do today, but there was a journey toward that. I'd like you to share with our listeners your origin story. You know, I think everybody's got a story. It's just frequently not the story we tell the world. And man, you you have an epic story that led you to this discernment. Talk about your your birth parents. Talk about Marcia and Martino. Marcia, Silvera, Prasad, uh, <laughs> Next to my mom, Debbie Hines, who adopted me, the most beautiful woman I've ever known, and next to my wife, Margaret. Uh, Marcia, what I know of her uh, is very little, but I do know that she loved my father, Martino, and they fell in love in the 1970s in San Francisco in the post-hippie era, and they were, they were flower children. They were hippies. And the problem is that they both had a diagnosed manic depression back then, which is what we today call bipolar, which is what I'm diagnosed with. But back then, they had no feasible legal income. They had no real job. They had no, they had no 
uh, way out of poverty in their minds, and they had nobody to treat their manic depression, which I think they may have been in denial of. They ended up living with a secondary disease of, of substance use disorder, primary alcoholism and serious drug use, illicit drugs. And although I wasn't born on drugs, I was born premature, and after I was born, after my brother was born, they began doing drugs. Um, and, and, and they couldn't take care of me and my brother as infants to the best of their ability. Uh, what they could do was keep us under a roof. So born in the Tenderloin of San Francisco, you know, in the worst area there then, the worst area there today, parts of it, and, and being born in the squalor, yeah. being born into a place of concrete slab floors, box spring for a mattress, the kind of place you paid for by the hour. If you didn't, you were out. That's what the court documents read that I've seen. But one day, one kind of seedy motel clerk makes his most unseated decision. You know, he hears me and my brother screaming and crying mm. for a time too much than he could handle. And he calls the police. And the police come in with Child Protective Services and they and they, they kind of swooped us up and they placed us immediately into social services care and the foster care system after that. The documents I've read state, and I see a quote, the children lie there in their own filth, barely clothed, screaming and crying, not to be neglected. Mm. Uh, we weren't even wearing diapers. That's where my life began. And me and my brother, when we were taken, would bounce around from home to home with the notion of the idea that we'd be adopted together. But of course, you know, you know that didn't happen. We right. we bounced around from home to home. We both got bronchitis and he died. And I can tell you, John, that I've had people say to me as an adult, hey, hey, Kevin, why does that matter? You were an infant. How did that affect you? And it's fascinating when someone doesn't recognize or is, hasn't been educated enough to, to understand that, you know, I'm sure you know, the first three to nine months of any infant's life are the most crucial to their ability to connect, adapt, attach, and be, be okay, be well in any future. And the first three to nine months of my life were hell. That caused, even back then as an infant, a severe detachment disorder and abandonment issue that follows me until right now. I mean, let's just talk about the food I was fed in the first few months of my life. Kool-Aid, Coca-Cola, and sour milk was my initial diet. And uh, one of the things I do as I travel around the, the world speaking is I, I wear a Deadpool hat and a Deadpool watch and sometimes Deadpool socks and shoes because I completely relate to that character from the Marvel Cinematic Universe uh, and from the Marvel Comics Universe because he was born in pain. His superhero ability was born in pain, and I believe so was I. And so growing up in my first few months in foster care, obviously it was uh, very difficult on my body, difficult on my small infant mind. And, and the sad part was that my brother died. And the good part is I got transferred to a different foster home where one day in walk, Debbie Hines, you know, this angel of a woman walks in, but she wasn't, you know, she wasn't even looking for a little boy. She was very specifically looking for a little girl to take home to be uh, the sister of Elizabeth Catherine, uh, the girl she and Patrick had already taken in. They wanted to give uh, Elizabeth the sister, but the first thing she saw on the carpet floor was me. And as she says in her journal in those days, that was the moment she fell in love. Uh, and she, she said to Patrick, should we take him in? He said, yes. Uh, and they took me in uh, and maybe their foster child. And then uh, it was a long process because Patrick and Deborah had to fight a two-year court hearing battle between Marcia and Martino for custody of me. Uh, my, my birth parents loved me. They wanted me but they couldn't take care of me. Mm -hmm. um, my birth father was killed. And when he passed, my birth mother turned to the court and said, Patrick and Deborah, please take care of my son. I can do this no longer. Mm -hmm. And that's where my life really changed because Pat and Debbie became and are my mom and dad. They were the best parents a kid could ever have compared to what, what was lurking in my potential future had I not had I not been adopted by them. And of course, as any parent who's not a superhero, they have flaws, but they are two of my favorite people in the world. And they initially saved my life and they saved two other lives. They could have had natural born yes. children, but they, they opted to take in three kids from three separate families and make this beautiful melting pot of the family. And even though we are a broken family in the sense that they were divorced, we're still very much a beautiful family and very much lucky to be who we are, where we are. And it was because, John, it was because of their hard work that we had amazing childhood, beautiful adolescents, and, and a great extended family that love us unconditionally. So we, we've been very blessed in that way. We could spend more than an hour just talking about Deb and her optimism and Patrick and his pragmatic side and, and what they did together growing up and all these children that they helped raise and love and guide forward. But you brought up the word adolescence. And I think in some regards, that's another inflection point along your journey, Kevin, 
your life is going pretty solid, man. You're an active kid. You're a good-looking kid. You're a bright kid. You're on the football team. And then things start to change adolescence. When did you begin to recognize that your life was getting sideways? It was 17 years of age. I started to become very erratic. I started to act unlike myself. I started to rapidly speak. I started to yell at my mom, screaming at her at the top of my lungs, calling her names, punching holes in the drywall. And I remember she had me remove the door to my own room so she could see me at all times. And I was very unwell. And then I remember being in a show. I was a theater kid. And it was on that stage in front of 1,200 people. I had a complete mental breakdown. I was in the middle of a scene. I ran off stage, ran to the lobby, and John Fennell, the theater director, uh, who was one of my heroes and really a, a second father figure to me, also uh, the second person next to my birth mother who died by suicide, eventually called my mom because I could not speak. I could not make a sentence. Mm -hmm. And so he called my mom and she picked me up. And very soon thereafter, I would see my very first psychiatrist who was a character himself, but uh, and, and he would be the the third person I would lose to suicide oh, gosh, that we became, became very close to. And, you know, before that happened, I would see him every week, almost twice a week. Uh, but here's the thing, John, I, I, I wasn't, I was not by any means being compliant with my treatment. I was right. 17. I wanted to party on the weekends with my friends. And that's what I did. I binge drank until blackout at least five times while I'm taking trouble with medications, which really could have been very dangerous. I'm lucky, you know, I didn't have a stroke or die. And um, I end up finding or trying to find recovery for the next decade and a half. I go from 17 to 18. Mom kicks me out at 18, go to live with my father at 18, live with my father for the next, I think, 15 years. And in those 15 years, it was hell. You know, my, my mom is, is this huge optimist and my dad is a beautiful man, but he's a pragmatic and, and pretty stone-faced guy and he's very serious. The thing with him is he, he'd been through a lot in his life, just like my birth parents had severe drug use. His birth parents would die of liver failure, cirrhosis, alcoholism, which of course is plaguing this nation along with the opioid crisis and suicide. But going to live with my dad was the hardest thing because, you know, he was like the drill sergeant who was never in the military. Mm -hmm. You know, as beautiful as he is, as wonderful as he is, for all the things he's taught me about hard work, his hardened life rubbed off on me. We would have these screaming matches in the house every day. And I was as bad as he was, you know, he was not at 19. I started to have regular hallucinations where I would see things that didn't exist to anyone, but me on a day-to-day -day basis. Kevin, were you, Monday, were you sharing that with your family or your, uh, your constant? No, no, honestly, I, I, I had been silencing my true pain for a very long time. Did you have a diagnosis at that point? I did. I, I had been diagnosed at 17 with bipolar type 1 with psychotic features, which is, a, which is the most severe form of bipolar type 1, which means that not only do I have the manic highs and the, and the crashes into depression, but I have very terrifying hallucinations, auditory and visual on a regular basis. Um, and back then, back then, they took themselves in the form of death himself hovering through my window right. with his scythe in his hand. He would say, come home with me. And that'd be like Monday, Monday through Monday. If it, wasn't, if it wasn't death, it was giant metallic spiders crawling across the ceiling down the walls to eat me. And if it wasn't that, it was bugs crawling to my skin, or it was little tiny hotels in the middle of my, my bedroom with people in them screaming out the windows. They took shape in all kinds of things. And you were keeping this uh, all in? Oh, I, I didn't tell a soul. You continue down this unbelievably lonely, dark, painful journey. Um, talk about a bus trip that you took on September 25th, 2000. I had written a note the night before. The pain had become too great. The weight of it on my shoulders was too heavy. And I couldn't bear the brunt of it anymore. So on the 24th, I wrote a note to my family and friends and my girlfriend at the time. And then I put that note in my shoulder bag. On the 25th, I, I eventually left to the bridge, the Golden Gate. I had, my understanding was that you would die on impact, which is not true. There are tens of ways people die off the Golden Gate Bridge, and most of them are very slow and violent. But people don't know that. They think it's an instant situation. It's not. And so I get on the bus. I sit in the very back row in the middle seat. And I begin to cry. And first, like, you know, a few tears, you know, soft tears, and then moderate, and then just these waterfalls flowing, and me kind of absolutely visibly losing it. And I had made a, I had made a pact with myself that if one person, one person on that bus says something to the effect of, hey, kid, are you okay? Brother, there's something wrong, or can I help you? I had uh, told myself if one person does it, I will 
tell them everything and beg them to save me. I could not verbalize it myself. One person to my left says something. He points at me with his thumb while looking to the guy to his left and says, what the hell's wrong with that kid? Literally with a smile on his face, which was, which was heartbreaking, you know, like I didn't matter. Uh, and I already felt, I already felt worthless. I already felt less than. I already, I already believed I had no value. I already, I already thought my family wanted me gone and dead forever, which doesn't make any sense logically. But that's what your, that's what perceived burdensomeness is in suicidal ideation. And we get to go and get bridge parking lot, and a hundred people deboard, and I sit there crying, just, just hoping beyond all hope and, and prayer that the driver will see my pain and say something nice. And he turns to me and he goes, "Hey, kid, come on, get off the bus. I gotta go." Oh man, that hit me like a right hook from Tyson, you know? And I walk up to him. I look him dead in the eye and he, he just motions for me with his arm to get off the bus. And so I get off the bus and I walk the Golden Gate for 40 minutes crying like a big baby, just falling. And I find a particular light rail, mm. you know, and I'm, I'm ready. This is it. This is where I go. And I'm really at this time still struggling. I'm like, Kevin, don't do this. Kevin, call anybody, yell out to anybody, say something to somebody. Kevin, do not do this. You don't have to die this way. And that's when a woman from my left approached me. She had blonde curly hair and these big sunglasses. And she says, as she pulls out a digital camera, will you take my picture? <laughs> and internally, I had to almost laugh like, lady, come on. This is really bad timing. <laughs> I take her picture. She stands in front of me where I am going to end my life and poses five times. And I used to be very upset at this. And then someone informed me, Kevin, wait a minute, wait a minute. She was literally the only person to try to engage with you and interact with you in a positive way. Smiled, asked you to take a picture, beautiful woman. You know, she was trying to show you something beautiful. And then my friend said, you missed it. You know, you could have told her right there what you were thinking. She engaged you. That's what you wanted. You missed it. And I believe that's accurate. I believe she really was trying to help in her own way. I believe there was a language barrier, you know, and she was trying to show me something wonderful and, 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 and and take me out of myself, but it didn't work. And you say that now, but I back had, then you saw, you felt something very different. I felt something very different then. Of course, hindsight is twenty twenty, but I really I do agree with what my friend said that that I did miss something there. And she walked away and took her camera, walked away. And I walked back to the traffic railing. I said, absolutely nobody cares, which was a lie, uh, because depression, suicidal ideation, mental illness, brain pain, substance use. Eating disorders, they're all the greatest liars we know. They're the greatest liars we know. And they, they can defeat us if we allow them to. So at that moment, the voice in my head that I've been hearing all bus rides and all, la- all the night before, screaming in my head, just screaming, you must die, jump now. At that point when I said nobody cares, it was the loudest it had ever been, bellowing in my head, jump now, and then I did. But it was, it was really the millisecond that my hands left that rail. It was an instant regret for my actions. And I... I had this feeling as I fell that I just made the greatest mistake of my life and it was too late. And I'm preparing, in a sense, in those four seconds of that fall for death. Take us back to that moment, man. You, uh, you say goodbye to your, your new blonde friend. She's got her digital camera back. She's walking away. Everybody else walking past. The traffic is cruising past. The breeze is in your face and your life is about to end. What, what is that moment even like as you as you leap, as you get ready to grab that rail and push yourself over? Like, what are you thinking before you let go and have that regret, but before that happens? It was only those two things. It was only absolutely nobody cares. The second thing in my head was jump now. That was it. It was that voice in my head, that internal me that hated me, that self-loathing that decided on its own that I had to die. It was almost, there was this duality. And that's why, that's why bipolar disorder has, its name. It's as you, you have this dual internal conflict inside you. And I'd had that conflict. Most people don't know this. I had that conflict since I was a child. Right. You know, I remember I'd be laying in bed and I'd have He-Man and Cringer the tiger and Skeletor and his purple uh, lion. Right, right. And, and, and they would be always fighting each other. And it was interesting as a child, as I look back now, Skeletor always won. Mm. And I, I think about that sometimes. Like, no matter what bad or good guy character I had in my hand, whether it was Megatron and, and Optimus Prime or, or He-Man and, and Skeletor, the bad guy always won. Always. Without fail. Well, on this date, as you are ready to leap, uh, Skeletor is about to win. 
and you have this regret yeah. as you're as you're free falling, as I understand, four seconds of free fall, 220 feet, 25 stories approaching 75 miles per hour. Yeah, yeah. In those four seconds, the thoughts in my mind, what have I just done? I don't want to die. God, please save me. And then I hit the water. Do you remember do you remember that moment when you hit the water? I, I remember I remember it vividly. I went down 70 feet and I opened my eyes. And I'm like, whoa, I thought you did. And then I'm alive. And now I'm drowning. And I, I, I didn't want to drown. I, I, and, and, and that's it. That's the illogical, irrational process of suicidal ideation. I, I jumped into a giant body of water, but I didn't want to drown. And, and, and that idea that I didn't think about that because of the nature of suicidal ideation. And so I'm frantically swimming in any direction, but I'm going down. Mm. My ears are ringing. My eyes are bulging out of my head. I know I'm going down. Now I recognize that. I shoot for the surface. I shoot for the opposite direction. I cannot feel my legs. Um, now, I don't know if they're mobile. I just know I couldn't feel them. I swim to the surface, feeling like I'm only using my arms. Mm. And, and I get to this lit circle of water above me, and I think, I'm not going to make it. This is where I die. I'm convulsing. I'm running out of air. I feel like this is it. You know, make my terms with heavens above, and here we go. And then something pops inside me, like, Kevin, you, 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 you can't die here. You die here, Kevin, nobody will ever know you didn't want to. No one will ever know you knew that you made a mistake. And I broke the surface. I bobbed up and down the water, took a breath of air, and I did the only thing I've had control over since since I was a kindergarten. I prayed, God, please save me. I don't want to die. I made a mistake. On repeat. And here, here are the three or four things that came into play that day that had they not each occurred in the timely manner in which they did in any situation, I'd most likely be dead. A woman driving by in a red car saw me go over the rail and called her best friend in the United States Coast Guard. The only reason the Coast Guard got to my position in the water before I would set in hypothermia and drown was because of that woman making that phone call because she happened to be driving by at the moment I jumped. Mm. In the water, as I flailed to stay afloat, I kept going down. Going down, going down, going down, coming up. Going down, going down, coming up. Once I go down one more, and, I, and I'm having a hard time coming back up. I'm tired. Uh, I'm having an asthma attack. My arms are worn out. And that's when something begins to circle beneath me. And it was very large and very slimy and alive. And I'm freaking out because I didn't know at that time that a shark's hide is very, uh, like, very much like sandpaper. This creature underneath me was very slippery. I didn't know at the time it wasn't a shark. So I'm freaking out like this thing is going to bite off my leg, bite off my arm or my ear, and it's over. But it doesn't bite me. And I'm like, what is happening? And I'm going up. Wait a minute. And then I'm lying on my back, no longer wading in the water. I'm afloat atop the water, being kept buoyant by this thing. And I'm still thinking, this is one heck of a nice shark. You know, <laughs> I, even, I even named him Herbert. Coast Guard boat arrives. Creature takes off. Coast Guard fishes me onto a flat board, puts me in a neck brace, straps me in from head to toe, and starts asking questions. And I remember the first guy leans his hand on my forehead and says, kid, you're a miracle. The second guy says, kid, do you know what you just did? And I'm like, yeah. And the third guy goes, son, do you understand how many people we pull out of these waters that are already gone? I said, no, sir, and I don't want to know. And he said, I'm going to tell you anyway. He said, young man, this unit alone has pulled 57 dead bodies from these waters and one live one. Mm. And when you put that in perspective, as a person who is that one live one, it, it's pretty impactful. And they got me to the ambulance. The ambulance gets me to the hospital. And at the hospital, as I'm entering the emergency ward, one of the foremost back surgeons on the West Coast was leaving for the day. He opted to stay. He opted to stay and do my surgery, the first and only of its particular kind. He invented it for my back saving me the ability to stand, walk, and run. And only five of the 39 Golden Gate Bridge jump survivors, to my knowledge, can do that, can stand, walk, and run. Um, they call us the most exclusive survivors club in the world in the book of the same name by Ben Sherwood. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I tell my audiences, like I told you earlier, I get to be here. And that's why. What I learned is that's why getting to be here is a privilege and a gift, no matter the pain you're in. We're all, we're all in pain in some way. We've all been in pain or going to be in pain, a mental, physical, emotional, spiritual, all of the above. Whatever it is, you can let it defeat you or you can let it build you. And I have chosen to let it build me. Kevin, you, you mentioned a moment ago that as you were in the water, again, I, I just want to kind of call some of these facts for the audience. 220 feet falling, 75 miles per hour. You hit the water as if it's concrete and then you slide down 70 feet and as you're down 70 feet, unable to move your legs at that point, swimming back up, you're thinking, I can't die because 
and this is a key piece for me, they're going to think I still wanted to die at the end and I don't want to die at the end. So I'd like you for a moment to speak to our audience members who have lost friends, family, parents, sons, daughters, spouses, roommates, uh, who aren't here today able to say, gosh, at the end, I wish I would have done something different. I had this regret and I am not able to speak it with you today. You shared a quote in one of your speeches and the quote was, they did not die because of you. And then you said, I need you to hear this again. They did not die because of you. When you said that to the audience that you were in front of, what were you hoping they might hear? I wanted them to understand that their loved ones died of an unrelenting, immeasurable, lethal emotional pain that had nothing to do with them. And that the guilt we carry, the pain it causes those who remain behind, the true devastation it leaves families with when one dies by suicide that we love. They didn't die because of you. They didn't die because of things you said or things you did. They died because of an internal brain pain that most likely had nothing to do with you. And I want them to take that away and understand that they are still good people and that they're 1,000 times greater than the worst thing they've ever done. And even if they had a hard life with the person that they lost, it's still not their fault. That's too much for anyone to bear. That's too heavy. Uh, and that's why we have family members who take their lives after someone takes theirs. And it's, you know, and friends and loved ones. And there's a positive and there's a negative ripple effect from mm-hmm. suicide. The positive ripple effect, uh, not from a death of suicide, but the positive ripple effect from people advocating for prevention is that we have the ability as human beings to reach those in despair and bring them back to safety through hard work with that person. The negative ripple effects of suicide, of course, are when you lose someone you love and then you feel so guilty that you attempt to die by your own hand. You call that the ripple effect of suicide. Yeah, you talk yeah. about it just being chronic in your own walk now that you are really expert in this field. How do we begin to move beyond that ripple effect of a suicide when it's already part of our story? Well, I think the only way to, to positively move on is to grieve together without blame and without guilt. As in, families need to sit down at the dinner table. Families need to celebrate that person's birthday the day they were born and brought into this world without that pain, right? So if you celebrate that birthday and you're only allowed on that day to talk about the good times, heck, forget the birthday. Do it every day. Do it every day you need to. Bring people together that love that person as much as you do. Don't blame them. Don't guilt them. You know, don't blame it on the girlfriend who dumped them. Don't blame it on the boyfriend who left them. Don't blame it on the husband that got a divorce from them. Don't blame it on the child who uh, was very difficult in behavior. Don't blame it on anything but the brain and its ability to override our natural, rational behavior. Don't blame, don't, don't hold guilt. Just sit down together and talk about the good times. The last smile, the last time you heard them laugh, the last warm embrace they gave you. That gives us solace and the way you move forward throughout the pain, and I never say people can move on. We can never move on from a suicide. I have lost eight people I know. Mm. We can never move on, but we can move forward through the pain and find the hope at the end of the day if we just work hard enough. Kevin, for me, in the emergency room, uh, when I came in, uh, one of the very first conversations I remember having was first with my father and then with my mother. And what I've read about you is you remember well also the conversation you had with your dad. (laughs) Take us back to that. Take us back to that day where dad shows back up. He gets there first because he speeds. And this is a man who I don't remember ever seeing cry for any reason. Not a death in the family, nothing. The man was, you know, he, he wasn't like he was ice cold. He was just tough from his upbringing. He walks into my room and he puts his hand on my forehead. And he says, Kevin, you're going to be okay. I promise you. And the hard part was that when he walked in, when he, when he, before he put his hand on my forehead, he stood at the foot of my bed and I watched the man I never see cry have waterfalls pour from his eye. You know, because he did not believe when the nurse called him and told him I was alive. He did not believe she was telling him the truth. He believed as a fourth generation sunset San Francisco Irishman that there's no way his son survived a jump up long embrace. He is preparing the entire drive to walk into a room and see me in a body bag. And so he walks in and there I am alive. I look up at him. I'm on a breathing tube, and, he, and he's just balls, just balls. 
And he comes over and says, Kevin, you're going to be okay, I promise. And I never let that go. Now, my mom walked in as the most optimistic woman in person I've met in my entire life. You know, this is a woman who can find light at the end of every tunnel, no matter how dark it is. She walks in smiling from ear to ear and goes, oh, honey, I guess God wanted you to win that Oscar. You know, and, and she's smiling. And, you know, it's what I needed. I needed that right then. It was beautiful because it was her. It was her nature. I remember saying, like, after I got to the hospital, like, mom, I did high school theater. You need to calm down. Like, right. And I remember she would, she would say to me on a regular basis, like, okay, when you get there, I want to be your plus one at the Oscars. I'm like, okay, mom, it's not going to happen. And then my brother walked in and sobered me up a little bit because he leans in. And he was enraged. Yeah. And he looks at me, and he's 13, and he goes, how could you do this to us? Mm. We love you. I hate you. And he walked out. And he has no recollection of this happening, but I have witnesses that were there. My high school and college counselor, he, he was right there, and, right there, and he saw it happen. That's fine. That, you know, my brother's narrative is to not remember that moment, but I will never forget it because it, it's dumb. You know? and, and, I, and I realized how much he actually, at the point, looked up to me. And, and to be frank, frank with you, John, I haven't, I haven't repaired that relationship. Mm. I haven't repaired that relationship. I haven't given that relationship time to repair. And I think that's something I need to do this year without fail is bring my connection back to my brother. Well, and I think I'm hearing from Kevin a challenge to all of us that if there is a sibling or a neighbor or a spouse or an ex-spouse in your life, that that relationship remains in disrepair, that there's an opportunity today and every day to, to work can't fix it right away, but we can work toward healing that together. And on September 25th, my friends, Kevin Hines got onto a bus and ran into guys who stared at him and asked, what's wrong with that kid? A, a driver who looked back, disengaged and said, get off the bus. A woman who saw him, but didn't really see him and said, hey, thanks for taking my picture. And we can be those people if we want in life. We can be those folks who are disengaged and unaware but we can also be that woman driving by who sees what's happening and makes the phone call. We can be also like Herbert the shark, who is actually one of them. It was the sea lion. And, and, uh, and a man wrote a letter into a TV show and said that, that the sea lion absolutely kept me afloat and, and, uh, until the Coast Guard boat neared behind me. The miraculous true story of the sea lion who keeps this human being that did not want to be alive, that now desperately wants to be alive, alive. We, we can be like that for someone else. And we can also be a challenge. And I understand as you're recovering, you're in a, in a psychiatric unit at this point, a friar walks in and says, what you in for, kid? Do you remember yeah. what happens from there? Yeah, I said, I'm I putting on my back brace, holding my cane. I said, uh, brother, I jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge. He goes, yeah, and I'm the Pope. <laughs> and uh, he's in my film, Suicide, The Ripple Effect, um, which is uh, you know going to be released now on iTunes pretty soon. Uh, and that's going to be really exciting because it's going to help more people. We've had 300 people come to that film, like physically enter the film, watch the film, come out and say, that film saved my life. Yeah, 300 people. It's been seen by 250,000 people around the world in 20 countries. And that is amazing. Um, and it's a film that, that we wanted to make a film about suicide prevention and suicide, the ripple effect in both ways. But we wanted to do it in a way that left people with hope in their hearts and the ability to move forward. And the first screening we ever did at the Louisiana Film Festival, an entire group of war veterans walked right behind me, grabbed me by the shoulders, turned me around and said, this film speaks for us. And as we traveled with the film around the world, we found nurses associations, doctors, school psychologists, school counselors, students themselves, and an array of other kinds of people that said, this film speaks for all of us, even those who lost their loved ones to suicide, right. which is very hard to do. You know, for me, it's been a rough and, and, and tangled web in a road, but here I am and, and I'm so grateful for my existence. And I often tell people, think of what you would have missed if you died by your hands. And let me tell you what I would have missed. I would have missed meeting the love of my life, Margaret Hines, and becoming her husband, her becoming my wife. I would have missed my best man, my dad being the best man at my wedding. Um, I would have missed the birth of my two godchildren, which I'm so glad I'm so alive to see, to see that and watch them grow and be a part of their lives. So all these things and thousands of more things over the last almost 20 years living with this disease, I would have missed these beautiful moments and even some of the tough moments, which shaped me, which I allowed to build me instead of defeat me, which I think is the message I want to leave with your audience is that there's two options here. You can go down two roads. You can become suicidal and then you can, you can attempt or pass away. Or you can recognize that all of us, every last one of us are going to die. We are mortals. We just need to give life time to do the hard work, to find that transformation, to find light at the end of that tunnel, 
to always survive the pain, no matter the pain. And I think that's one of the things that helps keep me here is this idea of faith, family, and friends. If you don't have right. faith in the higher power of God, that's fine. Have faith in yourself and your own ability to augment your destiny. Because if you have faith that you can turn things around, you can shift that focus, then you can defeat any pain that comes your way. Kevin, you, you mentioned in one of your presentations I watched online that um, I have faith in the light at the end of the tunnel. And then you said, and sometimes I don't even see the light. That's how dark this place gets even today. But now I know that it's there, even if I can't see it. So speak to those of us right now who are struggling to such a degree that we may not even see the glimmer of light. All right, my friends, because you are my friends, every single person around the world who is struggling with these ideations, these thoughts of taking your life. Hear me clearly, all right? You are intended to be here until your natural end. You are beautiful just as you are. You're 1,000 times greater than the worst thing you've ever done if you augment your destiny right now. You are supposed to be here. And sometimes I help people see that by, look at all, look at all the children who never made it past the womb, right? My wife, Marta, and I, uh, we know that pain very, very well. Jack Ryan, our son, lived eight weeks and no more. But if you weren't intended to be here in physical form, you all are for the simple fact that your ears are hearing this message right now. If you are suicidal, if you're in danger of self-harm, I want you to first go to youtube.com slash Kevin Hines. We've been in almost 20 videos there to help you change your life today. The playlist has videos on it that are trainable for clinicians and for anyone willing to share a message that is science-based, evidence-informed, to change someone's life who lives with mental illness or brain pain. That said, if you are in crisis right now, I want you to text CNQR to 74174. And I'll say it again. Text CNQR to 74171. That's courage to talk about your mental health, normalize the conversation, ask the direct question to somebody in pain, are you suicidal and have you made a plan in a calm, cool, non-judgmental way? And recovery is the art because we are living proof. It stands for conquer your pain. Um, and if you don't want to, if you don't like texting, uh, 1-800-273-8255 is the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, plus one for military uh, service men, women, and individuals, uh, veterans, or, or folks that are currently serving. And I know this sounds cliche, John, but there are people that really, really do care, but we need more of them. We need every single person hearing this message who is not suicidal to look out for those who may be. And sometimes, my friends, you are not going to see the sign. Sometimes they're as good at silencing their pain as I was. So you have to walk up to people who look like they're fine sometimes. And say, hey, you know, if you're going through anything and you want to talk about it, I'm here. You know, you have to look at your colleagues who might not visibly show the pain and say, uh, hey, have, have, you, have you been hurting lately? I just, I'm just curious because I care. Oftentimes, all people need is A, time to rethink it and become rational and B, someone to put their arm over their shoulder and say, no matter what you're going through, even if you're not willing to talk about it right now, I got your back. I'm here for you. And whatever you need, I'll be there. Kevin Hines, I, I feel like I'm about the, the most motivated guy I know. I, like, I love running. I love hopping on planes. I love speaking and sharing messages of life. And, uh, and yet I pale. I pale in comparison to when I look at you and the work that you're doing and the travel that you do. So the question as we get ready to wrap up this conversation is, what, what is it today that inspires you, looking backward, to, to be on the road 300 days a year for three consecutive years? What inspires you to say yes to podcasts like this? What inspires you yourself when there is no glimmer of hope, when there is no light at the end of the tunnel, to get back out of bed, to get back into life, and to make a difference for those around you? Like, what, what, What's your guiding light today? You know, my inspirations are, are basically fivefold, okay? My faith in God that this life is a gift, number one. Uh, uh, number two uh, is my father, Patrick Hines, and my wife, Margaret Hines, because they give me more, more hope than anybody in this world. Three, four, and five are in this order. Dwayne Johnson, as we know him, The Rock, uh, helped save my life before I jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge. When I read his book, and his struggles and depression after he lost his spot on, on his team and after he had to go play for the GFL uh, when he had seven bucks in his pocket. And he turned his life around from the kid who was always arrested, getting in trouble, got kicked off the island, got evicted, and look where he is today. The most bankable, biggest movie star the world has ever seen uh, because of hard work. As he always talks about, it's all about being a project and putting in the work with your own two hands. 
And that resonated with my father's message, right? And, and my dad would bring me that book to every psych ward today, right? And, and I would just read the highlighted passage about surviving de- depression through faith. He has always inspired me. You know, when he gets in the gym at 4.30 in the morning, I may not be there at 4.30, but I'm there at 6 o'clock and I'm getting it done. And his inspiration has carried me for a, for a long way. And his, his readings and the articles about him, uh, I'm not a fan of Dwayne Johnson. I, I'm, a, I'm a believer in his belief that we are all projects. And he inspires me that way. The next to that, one of the persons I look up to in a great way is, is Lewis House and the way he went from homelessness to success and kept on fighting and has built a platform on how to help other people transform their lives. It's beautiful. And tertiarily, the, the last person on that list is my uncle, Kevin Joseph Ryan, may he rest in peace. He was my best friend. He was at every psych ward stay without fail. Every psych ward stay without fail until he was sick with pancreatic cancer and he died. When the funeral ended and we were all standing together reminiscing about Kevin. 25 individuals stood to talk and said that Uncle Kevin saved their life. He was 30 years drunk in his early years and he was not very useful to my father. as My father was growing up in poverty and he was 30 years sober from my life. And in his last 10 years, his last 10 chips at AA, I was there. And that is where I learned to tell stories from Uncle Kevin. Uncle Kevin taught me the art of the spoken word after Brother George Cherry and Monsignor Michael Harriman taught me that I needed to speak on. I've had this major transformation, but it's been ongoing. And I'll, I'll leave you with this. If you don't believe you can defeat your pain, and, and John, you're going to resonate with this. 125 weeks ago, I developed second degree burns from the bottom of my feet to the top of my head, a medical burn from medication poisoning my organ. And so I was on the tipping point of what's called Stevens-Johnson syndrome. Yeah, man. 1% of people survive that, that syndrome. So I didn't get that, but I got close. And they had to remove me from all of my psych and asthma medication in one day, which meant I had a 73-hour hallucinatory withdrawal-based psychosis, which meant I saw the answers to the universe. And, and let me, I'll briefly touch upon it. I saw Jesus come off the cross, turn into 40 or 50 Jesus bust right in front of me, all speaking in different languages, all in different ethnicities from around the world, speaking different tongues that I understood. I saw Bhutan, the, the King of Bhutan. I saw Gandhi. I saw Buddha. And they all gave me various messages. I saw, um, you know, the aliens that brought Jesus and the aboriginals that brought them. But it was just wild. Uh, I saw the Aurora Borealis in my room for 48 hours. It was, it was absolutely bananas. And then I came through from that in this excruciating pain for 30 weeks. 30 weeks of feeling like knives and needles are coming out of my skin, from my bone, all over my body. And John, I wanted to die. I wanted to take my, it was the first time I ever wanted to die. I didn't want to die when I jumped off the Golden Bridge. I believed I had to. But now, having this campaign, every day, all day long, I wanted to take my life. But I didn't buckle. I didn't fold. I didn't give in. I fought my way through the pain. I found healing for my issues. And I, here I am talking to you. And that's amazing. And that is a, you're a gift to me. Mm. Um, and so to all the people who believe they can't defeat your pain, that is because of your own personal narrative change and shift the paradigm right now. Look at yourself in the mirror and instead of self-loathing, say, you are beautiful, you are amazing, you are gorgeous, and I love you. You do that 21 times, it becomes a habit. You do it for 365 days, it's fact. You believe it. It's real. Well, Kevin Hines, you are beautiful. You are gorgeous. We do love you. And you are an example of what overcoming looks like. And every one of our guests that we've been fortunate to interview on the Live Inspired podcast has been asked the final seven questions. So I'd love to... uh, to guide you through these questions right now, the first one is, what is the best book you've ever read? Wow, that's a great question. I think it has to be, <laughs> might be biased, uh, but The Rock says, by Dwayne Johnson. The Rock is getting plugs <laughs> on the podcast. I mean, th- this, is, this was you not know, what I expected you know, before the podcast started, but The Rock is all in today. <laughs> it, it changed my life forever and continues to do so. Awesome. Secondly, what one positive characteristic, one trait did you possess as a child that you wish you exhibited as brilliantly today? Mm. I think I need to work on expressing my vulnerability more as I did as a child. I do a pretty good job, but I could do better. Well, you've done a pretty phenomenal job during our day together, and I'm grateful for it. Kevin, if your home caught fire and all living things are already out, your family, your pets, and you have an opportunity to run back in and grab one item, What's the one thing you would come back out of that house with? The cross on my wall with Jesus. Why that cross? Why not, why not go to Walmart and get a new one? What, what is it about that one that has so much meaning to you? 
that one was gifted to my mother-in-law and then gifted to my wife and then, and, and then stays in our house. Uh, and my mother-in-law was the most pious woman I've ever met in my entire life. She was most closely connected to God. Mother Teresa asked to see her mm. when she worked, worked with her uh, doing work for the poor. This woman uh, has a direct line to all that is holy. And she's passed of lung cancer and brain cancer, and we miss her every day. Uh, but she was a powerfully beautiful woman. Beautiful. Thank you for that. And if you could sit on a bench overlooking a beach on a gorgeous day and have a long conversation with anybody living or dead, Kevin, who, who do you want to have a conversation with? A young Jesus. Wow. What would you ask a young Jesus? What's the first question out of your mouth? Thank you. <laughs> That's not a question mark. It's a period. And uh, what do you think he says? In <laughs> what do you think he says in response? I think he's like Batman. He goes, "You never have to thank me." <laughs> what What's the best advice that you've ever received? Uh, twofold from my mom and from my dad. My mom taught me to be kind, compassionate, loving, caring, empathetic, and non-judgmental to every person I ever come into contact with, no matter their behavior toward me. Um, and my dad taught me hard work because nothing good ever came without it. Those are the two best lessons I've ever learned. What would you tell your 20-year-old self? Before or after the jump? Was that jump of 19? You jumped, so this is right afterwards. You got this on lockdown. Keep moving forward. I like that. You got this on lockdown. Keep moving forward. Kevin Hines, it has been said that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like your one life to read? Kevin Hines survived the pain in spite of the pain, despite of the pain, to thrive today so he can have the ability to just try to help other people. Kevin Hines has indeed survived the pain and in spite of the pain, despite the pain, has swum up the 70 feet, has reached his hand forward for help, is now reaching his hand out to the rest of us and is an awesome example, not only of how difficult life is, but how beautiful life continues to be. So Kevin, I wanna thank you for accepting your second chance at life. John, thank you for having me on the show. I greatly appreciate it. And I want to say that if anybody once again needs any resources from me, you can reach me at youtube.com slash Kevin Hines. I always respond to those particular messages as soon as humanly possible. It's the easiest way for me to respond to you right now. And if you're in pain, watch those videos because they will help you and they're free. My friends, that is Kevin Hines sharing an invaluable message on overcoming, on possibility, on hope, and on life. I am John O'Leary, and this is your day. Soak it up, enjoy it, savor it, and live inspired. Could you use a little inspiration beyond just this podcast? If you could, I hope you can, connect with me. I'm very active on social media, sharing positive, actionable thoughts and videos and posts about what could be inspiring to you right this moment. So find me on Facebook by searching John O'Leary Live Inspired. My Instagram handle is johnoleary.inspires. Or if you're hanging out on Twitter, the handle there is at joleary.inspires inspires. Anywhere that you are on social media, we are hanging out as well. And we are sharing news that is elevating for you in your work, in your relationships, and in your life. I'm looking forward to seeing you there.